3. Reginald dedication in Adam Bede reads thus, to my dear husband, George Henry Lewis, I give the manuscript of a work which would never have been written but for the happiness which his love has conferred on my life. Lord Acton of course assumes that this book would have been written, dedication and all, just the same had Miss Evans never met Mr. Lewis. Once there was a child called Romola, she said to her father one day, as she sat on his knee, Papa, who would take care of me give me my bath and put me to bed nights if you had never happened to meet Mama. The days I spent in Warwickshire were very pleasant. The serene beauty of the country and the kindly courtesy of the people impressed me greatly. Having beheld the scenes of George Eliot's childhood, I desired to view the place where her last days were spent. It was a fine May day when I took the little steamer from London Bridge for Chelsea, a bird call from the dingy brick building where Turner died, and two blocks from the old home of Carlisle, is Cheney Walk a broad avenue facing the river. The houses are old, but they have a look of gracious gentility that speaks of ease and plenty. High iron fences are in front, but they do not shut off from view the climbing clematis and clusters of roses that gather over the windows and doors. I stood at the gate of number 4 Cheney Walk and admired the pretty flowers, planted in such artistic carelessness as to beds and rows, then I rang the bell and old pull out affair with polished knob, presently a butler opened the door a pompous, tall and awful butler in serious black and with side whiskers, he approached, came down the walk swinging a bunch of keys, looking me over as he came, to see what sort of wares I had to sell, did George Eliot live here, I asked through the bars, Mrs. Cross lived air and died air. Sir, came the solemn and rebuking answer. I mean Mrs. Cross. I added meekly, I only wished to see the little garden where she worked. James was softened. As he unlocked the gate he said, We are the many visitors. Sir, a great bother. Sir, still, I always knows a gentleman when I sees one. P single quote R single quote APS you would like to see the ooze. 2. Sir, the missus does not like it much. But I will take your your card, sir. I gave him the card and slipped a shilling into his hand as he gave me a seat in the hallway. He disappeared upstairs and soon returned with the pleasing information that I was to be shown the whole house and garden. So I pardoned him the myth about the missus, happening to know that at that particular moment she was at Brighton, sixty miles away. A goodly, comfortable house, four stories, well kept and much fine old carved oak in the dining room and hallways, fantastic ancient balusters, and a peculiar bay window in the second story rear that looked out over the little garden. Off to the north could be seen the green of Kensington Gardens and wavy suggestions of Hyde Park. This was George Eliot's workshop. There was a table in the center of the room and three low bookcases with pretty ornaments above. In the bay window was the most conspicuous object in the room a fine marble bust of Gerda. This, I was assured had been the property of Mrs. Cross, as well as all the books and furniture in the room. In one corner was a revolving case containing a set of the Century Dictionary, which James assured me had been purchased by Mr. Cross as a present for his wife a short time before she died. This caused my faith to waver a trifle and put to flight a fine bit of literary frenzy that might have found form soon in a sonnet. In the front parlor, I saw a portrait of the former occupant that showed the face that looked like a horse. But that is better than to have the face of any other animal of which I know. Surely one would not want to look like a dog. Shakespeare hated dogs, but spoke forty-eight times in his plays in terms of respect and affection for a horse, who would not resent the imputation that one's face was like that of a sheep or a goat or an ox. 
and much gore has been shed because men have referred to other men as asses but a horse. God bless you. Yes, no one has ever accused George Eliot of being handsome, but this portrait tells of the woman of fifty, calm, gentle, and the strong features speak of a soul in which to confide. At Highgate, by the side of the grave of Louise, rests the dust of this great and loving woman. As the pilgrim enters that famous old cemetery, the first imposing monument seen is a pyramid of rare, costly porphyry. As you draw near, you read this inscription, to the memory of NJEWSO and Crisp who departed this life deeply lamented, January 20th, 1889. Also, her dog, Emperor, beneath these tender lines is a bas relief of as vicious looking a cur as ever evaded the dog tax. Continuing up the avenue, past this monument just noted, the kind old gardener will show you another that stands amid others much more pretentious a small grey granite column, and on it, carved in small letters, you read, of those immortal dead who live again in minds made better by their presence, he arrests the body of, George Eliot, Mary Ann Cross born November 22, 1819, died December 22, 1880. Thomas Carlyle one comfort is that great men taken up in any way are profitable company. We cannot look, however imperfectly, upon a great man without gaining something by it. He is the living fountain of life, which it is pleasant to be near. On any terms whatsoever you will not grudge to wander in his neighborhood for a while. Heroes and hero worship while on my way to Dumfries I stopped overnight at Gretna Green, which, as all fair maidens know, is in Scotland just over the border from England. To my delight I found that the coming of runaway couples to Gretna Green was not entirely a matter of the past. For the very evening I arrived a blushing pair came to the inn and inquired for a minister. The lady fair was a little stout and the worthy swain several years older than my fancy might have wished. But still I did not complain. The landlord's boy was dispatched to the rectory around the corner and soon returned with the reverend gentleman. I was an uninvited guest in the little parlor, but no one observed that my wedding garment was only a cycling costume, and I was not challenged. After the ceremony, the several other witnesses filed past the happy couple, congratulating them and kissing the bride. I did likewise, and was greeted with a resounding smack which surprised me a bit, but I managed to ask, Did you run away? No, said the groom, no. Her was a witty we just come over Framicliffekin, then, lowering his voice to a confidential whisper, we are going back on the morrow, it's cheaper fun to hot a big, spread wedding. This answer banished all tender sentiment from me and made useless my plans for a dainty love story, but I seized upon the name of the place whence they came, Ecliffekin, Ecliffekin, why that's where Carlyle was born, I, sir, and he's buried there. A great Monday he was but an infidel. Ten miles beyond Gretna Green is a cliffhack and a little village of stucco houses all stretched out on one street. Plain, homely, rocky and in romantic is the country roundabout. And plain, homely and in romantic is the little house where Carlyle was born. The place is shown the visitor by a good old dame who takes one from room to room. Giving a little lecture meanwhile in a mixture of Gaelic and English which was quite beyond my camp. Several relics of interest are shown, and although the house is almost precisely like all others in the vicinity, imagination throws round it all a roseate wreath of fancies. It has been left on record that up to the year when Carlyle was married, his most pleasurable times were those when he enjoyed a quiet pipe with his mother. To few men indeed is this felicity vouchsafed.
but for those who have eaten oatmeal porridge in the wayside cottages of Bonnie Scotland, or who love to linger over the cotter's Saturday night, there is a touch of tender pathos in the picture, the stone floor, the bare, whitewashed walls, the peat smoldering on the hearth, sending out long, fitful streaks that dance among the rafters overhead, and the mother and son sitting there watching the coal silent, the woman takes a small twig from a bundle of sticks, reaches over, lights it, applies it to her pipe, takes a few whiffs and passes the light to her son, then they talk in low, earnest tones of man's duty to man and man's duty to God, and it was this mother who first applied the spark that fired Carlyle's ambition, it was from her that he got the germ of those talents which have made his name illustrious, yet this woman could barely read and did not learn to write until her firstborn had gone away from the home nest, then it was that she sharpened a gray goose quill and labored long and patiently, practicing with this instrument said to be mightier than the sword and with ink she herself had mixed all that she might write a letter to her boy, and how sweetly, tenderly homely, and loving are these letters as we read them today. James Carlyle with his own hands built, in 1790, this house at Ecclefechan, the same year he married an excellent woman, a second cousin, by name Janet Carlyle, she lived but a year, the poor husband was heartbroken, and declared, as many men under like conditions had done before and have done since, that his sorrow was inconsolable, and he vowed that he would walk through life and down to his death alone, but it is a matter for congratulation that he broke his vow. In two years he married Margaret Aitken a serving woman, she bore nine children, Thomas was the eldest and the only one who proved recreant to the religious faith of his fathers, one of the brothers moved to Shawasi County, Michigan, where I had the pleasure of calling on him, some years ago, a hard-headed man, he was, sensible, earnest, honest, with a stubby beard and a rich brogue, he held the office of school trustee, also that of pound master and I was told that he served his township loyally and well. This worthy man looked with small favor on the literary pretensions of his brother Tamas, and twice wrote him long letters expostulating with him on his religious vagaries. I knew no good could come of it, sorrowfully said he, and so I left him. But I inquired of several of the neighbors what they thought of Thomas Carlyle, and I found that they did not think of him at all, and I mounted my beast and rode away. Thomas Carlyle was educated for the Kirk, and it was a cause of much sorrow to his parents that he could not accept its beliefs. He has been spoken of as England's chief philosopher, yet he subscribed to no creed, nor did he formulate one. However, in latter-day pamphlets, he partially prepares a catechism for a part of the brute creation. He supposes that all swine of superior logical powers have a belief, and as they are unable to express it he essays the task for them. The following are a few of the postulates in this creed of the Brotherhood of Latter-day Swine. Question. Who made the pig? Answer. The pork butcher. Question. What is the whole duty of pigs? Answer. It is the mission of universal pighood, and the duty of all pigs, at all times, is to diminish the quantity of attainable swill and increase the unattainable. This is the whole duty of pigs. Question. What is pig poetry? Answer. It is the universal recognition of pigs wash and ground barley and the felicity of pigs whose through has been set in order and who have enough. Question. What is justice in big dumb? Answer. It is the sentiment in big nature sometimes called revenge, indignation, etc. which if one big provoke, another comes out in more or less destructive manner, hence laws are necessary amazing quantities of laws defining what pigs shall not do.
Question. What do you mean by equity? Answer. Equity consists in getting your share from the universal swine through, and part of another's. Question. What is meant by your share? Answer. My share is getting whatever I can contrive to seize without being made up into side meat. I have slightly abridged this little extract and inserted it here to show the sympathy which Mr. Carlyle had for the dumb brute, one of America's great men, in a speech delivered not long ago, said, from Scotch manners, Scotch religion and Scotch whiskey, good Lord deliver us. My experience with these three articles has been somewhat limited, but Scotch manners remind me of chestnut burrs not handsome without, but good within. For when you have gotten beyond the rough exterior of Sandy you generally find a heart warm, tender and generous. Scotch religion is only another chestnut burr. But then you need not eat the shuck if you fear it will not agree with your inward state. Nevertheless, if the example of royalty is of value, the fact can be stated that Victoria, Queen of Great Britain and Empress of India, is a Presbyterian. That island she is a Presbyterian about one half the time when she is in Scotland for she is the head of the Scottish Kirk, when in England, of course she is an Episcopalian, we have often been told that religion is largely a matter of geography, and here is a bit of something that looks like proof, of Scotch whiskey I am not competent to speak, so that subject must be left to the experts, but a Kentucky colonel at my elbow declares that it cannot be compared with the bluegrass article, though I trust that no one will be prejudiced against it on that account, Scotch intellect, however, is worthy of our serious consideration. It is a bold, rocky headland, standing out into the tossing sea of the unknown. Assertive, yes, stubborn, most surely, proud, by all means. Twice as many pilgrims visit the grave of Burns as that of Shakespeare. Buckle declares Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations has had a greater influence on civilization than any other book ever writ save none, and the average Scotchman knows his Carlyle a deal better than the average American knows his Emerson. In fact, four times as many of Carlyle's books have been printed, when Carlyle took time to bring the ponderous machinery of his intellect to bear on a theme, he saw it through and through. The vividness of his imagination gives us a true insight into times long since gone by, it shows virtue her own feature, vice her own image, and the very age and body of the time his form and pressure. In history he goes beyond the political and conventional showing us the thought, the hope, the fear, the passion of the soul. His was the masculine mind, the divination and subtle intuitions which are to be found scattered through his pages, like violets growing among the rank swale of the prairies all these sweet, odorous things came from his wife, she gave him of her best thought, and he greedily absorbed it and unconsciously wrote it down as his own, there are those who blame and berate, volumes have been written to show the inconsiderateness of this man toward the gentle lady who was his intellectual comrade, but they know not life who do this thing. It is a fact that Carlyle never rushed to pick up Janie's handkerchief. I admit that he could not bow gracefully, that he could not sing tenor, nor waltz, nor tell funny stories, nor play the mandolin, and if I had been his neighbor I would not have attempted to teach him any of these accomplishments. Once he took his wife to the theater, and after the performance he accidentally became separated from her in the crowd and trudged off home alone and went to bed forgetting all about her but even for this I do not indict him. Mrs. Carlyle never upbraided him for this forgetfulness, neither did she relate the incident to anyone, and for these things I to her now reverently lift my hat. Jeannie Welsh Carlyle had capacity for pain, as it seems all great souls have, 
she suffered but then suffering is not all suffering and pain is not all pain. Life is often dark, but then there are rifts in the clouds when we behold the glorious deep blue of the sky. Not a day passes but that the birds sing in the branches, and the treetops poise backward and forward in restful, rhythmic harmony, and never an hour goes by but that hope bears us upon her wings as the eagle does her young, and ever just before the year dies and the frost comes, the leaves take on a gorgeous hue and the color of the flowers then puts to shame for brilliancy all the plainer petals of springtime, and I know Mr. and Mrs. Carlyle were happy, so happy, at times, that they laughed and cried for joy, Jeannie gave all, and she saw her best thought used carried further, written out and given to the world as that of another but she uttered no protest, Xantippe lives in history only because she sought to worry a great philosopher, we remember the daughter of Herodias because she demanded the head not the heart of a good man, Gonreal and Reven because they trod upon the withered soul of their sire, Lady Macbeth because she lured her, leech to murder, Charlotte Corday for her dagger thrust, Lucrezia Borgia for her poison, Sapphira for her untruth, Yale because she pierced the brain of Caesar with a rusty nail instead of an idea, Delilah for the reason that she deprived Samson of his source of strength, and in the Westminster Review for May 1894, we can make the flat statement that for every man of genius who has been helped by a woman, ten have been dragged down, but Jeannie Welsh Carlyle lives in the hearts of all who reverence the sweet, the gentle, the patient, the earnest, the loving spirit of the womanly woman, lives because she ministered to the needs of a great man, she was ever a frail body, several long illnesses kept her to her bed for weeks, but she recovered from these, even in spite of the doctors, who thoroughly impressed both herself and her husband with the thought of her frailty, on April the 21st, 1866, she called her carriage, as was her custom, and directed the driver to go through the park, she carried a book in her hands, and smiled a greeting to a friend as the broom moved away from the little street where they lived, the driver drove slowly drove for an hour or two, he got down from his box to receive the orders of his mistress, touched his head as he opened the carriage door, but no kindly eyes looked into his, she sat back in the corner as if resting, the shapely head a little thrown forward, the book held gently in the delicate hands, but the fingers were cold and stiff Jeannie Welsh was dead and Thomas Carlyle was alone, along the Thames, at Chelsea, opposite the rows of quiet and well-kept houses of Cheney Walk, is the embankment, a parkway it is of narrow green, with graveled walks, bushes and trees, that here and there grow lush and lusty as if to hide the unsightly river from the good people who live across the street. Following this pleasant bit of breathing space, with its walks that wind in and out among the bushes, one comes unexpectedly upon a bronze statue. You need not read the inscription, a glance at that shaggy head, the grave, sober, earnest look, and you exclaim under your breath, Carlyle. In this statue the artist has caught with rare skill the look of reverie and repose. One can imagine that on a certain night, as the mists and shadows of evening were gathering along the dark river, the gaunt form, wrapped in its accustomed cloak, came stalking down the little street to the park, just as he did thousands of times, and taking his seat in the big chair fell asleep. In the morning the children that came to play along the river found the form in cold, enduring bronze. At the play we have seen the marble transformed by love into beauteous life. How much easier the reverse here where souls stay only a day. Cheney Row is a little, alley-like street, running only a block, 
with fifteen houses on one side, and twelve on the other. These houses are all brick and built right up to the sidewalk. On the north side they are all in one block, and one at first sees no touch of individuality in any of them. They are old, and solid, and plain built for revenue only. On closer view I thought one or two had been painted, and on one there was a cornice that set it off from the rest. As I stood on the opposite side and looked at this row of houses, I observed that number five was the dingiest and plainest of them all, for there were dark shutters instead of blinds, and these shutters were closed, all save one rebel that swung and creaked in the breeze, over the doorway. Sparrows had made their nests and were fighting and scolding, swallows hovered above the chimney, dust, cobwebs, neglect were all about, and as I looked there came to me the words of Ursa Thomas, brief, brawling day, with its noisy phantoms, its paper crowns, tinsel gilt, is gone, and divine, everlasting night, with her star diadems, with her silences and her verities, is come, here walked Thomas and Jeannie one fair May morning in 1834, Thomas was 39, tall and swarthy, strong, with set mouth and three wrinkles on his forehead that told of care and dyspepsia, Jeannie was younger, her face winsome, just a trifle anxious, with luminous, gentle eyes, suggestive of patience, truth and loyalty, they looked like country folks, did these do, they examined the surroundings, consulted together 60 pounds rent a year seemed very high, but they took the house, and T. Carlyle, son of James Carlyle, stonemason, paid rent for it every month for half a century, lacking three years, I walked across the street and read the inscription on the marble tablet inserted in the front of the house above the lower windows, it informs the stranger that Thomas Carlyle lived here from 1834 to 1881, and that the tablet was erected by the Carlyle Society of London. I ascended the stone steps and scraped my boots on the well-worn scraper, made long, long ago by a blacksmith who is now dust, and who must have been a very awkward mechanic, for I saw where he had made a misstroke with his hammer, probably as he discussed theology with a caller. Then I rang the bell and plied the knocker and waited there on the steps for Jeannie Welsh to come bid me welcome, just as she did Emerson when he, too, used the scraper and plied the knocker and stood where I did then, and my knock was answered answered by a very sour and peevish woman next door, who thrust her head out of the window, and exclaimed in a shrill voice, Look air, sir, you might as well go rap on the curbstone, don't you know, there's nobody living there, sir, don't you know? Yes, madam, that is why I knocked, begging your pardon, sir, if you use your eyes you'll see there's nobody living there, don't you know, I knocked lest offense be given, how can I get in, you might go in through the keyhole, sir, or down the chimney, you seem to be a little daft, sir, don't you know, but if you must get in perhaps it would be as well to go over to Mrs. Brown's and bring the key, and she slammed down the window. Across the street Mrs. Brown's sign smiled at me. Mrs. Brown keeps a little grocery and bake shop and was very willing to show me the house. She fumbled in a black bag for the keys, all the time telling me of three Americans who came last week to see Carlyle's house. And, as how, they each gave her a shilling. I took the hint. Only Americans care now for Mr. Carlyle. Plaintively added the old lady as she fished out the keys. Soon we will all be forgot. We walked across the street and after several ineffectual attempts the rusty lock was made to turn. I entered, cold, bare and bleak was the sight of those empty rooms, 
The old lady had a touch of rheumatism, so she waited for me on the doorstep as I climbed the stairs to the third floor. The noise-proof back room where the French Revolution was writ twice over was so dark that I had to grope my way across to the window. The sash stuck and seemed to have a will of its own, like him who so often had raised it. But at last it gave way and I flung wide the shutter and looked down at the little arbor where Tufelstrock sat so often and wooed wisdom with the wig brought from Virginia. Then I stood before the fireplace, where he of the eternities had so often sat and watched the flickering embers. Here he lived in his loneliness and cursed curses that were her prayers. And here for near five decades he read and thought and dreamed and wrote. Here the spirits of Cromwell and Frederick hovered, here that pitiful and pitiable long line of ghostly partakers in the revolution answered to his roll call. The wine whistled down the chimney gruesomely as my footfalls echoed through the silent chambers, and I thought I heard a sepulchral voice say, Thy future life, thy fate is it, indeed, whilst thou makest that thy chief question, thy life to me and to thyself and to thy God is worthless, what is incredible to thee thou shalt not. At thy soul's peril, pretend to believe, else whither for a refuge, away, go to perdition if thou wilt, but not with a lie in thy mouth by the eternal maker, no, I was startled at first, but stood still listening, then I thought I saw a faint blue cloud of mist curling up in the fireplace, watching this smoke and sitting before it in gloomy abstraction was the form of an old man, I swept my hand through the apparition, but still it stayed. My lips moved in spite of myself and I said, Hail, hard-headed man of granite outcrop and heather, of fen and crag, of moor and mountain, and of bleak east wind. Hail, eighty-six years didst thou live, one hundred years lacking fourteen didst thou suffer. Enjoy, weep, dream, groan, pray and strike thy rugged breast. And yet methinks that in those years there was much quiet peace and sweet content, for constant pain denumbs, and worry destroys and vain and rest summons the grim messenger of death. But thou didst love and work and love, howbeit, thy touch was not always gentle, nor thy voice low, but on thy lips was no lie, in thy thought no concealment, in thy heart no pollution. But mark, thou didst come out of poverty and obscurity, on thy battered shield there was no crest and thou didst leave all to follow truth, and verily she did lead thee a merry chase. Thou hadst no past, but thou hast a future. Thou didst say, bury me in Westminster, never, where the mob surges, cursed with idle curiosity to see the graves of kings and nobodies, no, take me back to rugged Scotland and lay my tired form to rest by the side of an honest man my father, thou didst refuse the knighthood offered thee by royalty, saying, I am not the founder of the house of Carlisle and I have no sons to be pauperized by a title, true, thou didst leave no sons after the flesh to mourn thy loss nor fair daughters to bedeck thy grave with garlands, but thou didst reproduce thyself in thought, and on the minds of men thou didst leave thy impress, and thy ten thousand sons will keep thy memory green so long as men shall work, and toil, and strive, and hope. The wine still howled, I looked out and saw watery clouds scudding athwart the face of the murky sky, the shutters banged, and shut me in the dark, I made haste to find the door, reached the stairway slid down the banisters to where Mrs. Brown was waiting for me at the threshold. We locked the door. She went across to her little bake shop and I stopped a passing policeman to ask the way to Westminster. He told me. Did you visit Carlyle's use? He asked. Yes. With old Mrs. Brown? Yes. 
She waited for me in the doorway. She had the rheumatism so she could not climb the stairs. Rheumatism? How? You couldn't hire a to go inside. Why? Don't you know? They say the ooze is ant. John Ruskin put roses in their hair. Put precious stones on their breasts. See that they are clothed in purple and scarlet. With other delights, that they also learn to read the gilded heraldry of the sky, and upon the earth be taught not only the labors of it but the loveliness. Ducalion at Windermere, a good friend, told me that I must abandon all hope of seeing Mr. Ruskin, for I had no special business with him, no letters of introduction, and then the fact that I am an American made it final. Americans in England are supposed to pick flowers in private gardens, cut their names on trees, laugh boisterously at trifles, and often to make invidious comparisons, very properly. Mr. Ruskin does not admire these things. Then Mr. Ruskin is a very busy man. Occasionally he issues a printed manifesto to his friends requesting them to give him peace. A copy of one such circular was shown to me. It runs, Mr. J. Ruskin is about to begin a work of great importance, and therefore begs that in reference to calls and correspondence you will consider him dead for the next two months. A similar notice is reproduced in Arrows of the Chase, and this one thing, I think, illustrates as forcibly as anything in Mr. Ruskin's work the self-contained characteristics of the man himself. Surely if a man is pleased to be considered dead occasionally, even to his kinsmen and friends, he should not be expected to receive with open arms an enemy to steal away his time. This is assuming, of course, that all individuals who pick flowers in other folks' gardens, cut their names on trees, and laugh boisterously at trifles, are enemies. I therefore decided that I would simply walk over to Brantwood, view it from a distance, tramp over its hills, row across the lake, and at nightfall take a swim in its waters. Then I would rest at the inn for a space and go my way. Lake Coniston is ten miles from Grasmere, and even alone the walk is not long. If, however, you are delightfully attended by King's daughters, with whom you sit and commune now and then on the bank side, the distance will seem to be much less. Then there is a pleasant little break in the journey at Hawkshead. Here one may see the quaint old schoolhouse where Wordsworth when a boy dangled his feet from a bench and proved his humanity by carving his initials on the seat. The inn at the head of Coniston Water appeared very inviting and restful when I saw it that afternoon. Built in sections from generation to generation, half covered with ivy and embowered in climbing roses, it is an institution entirely different from the Grand Palace Hotel at Oshkosh. In America we have gongs that are fiercely beaten at stated times by gentlemen of color, just as they are supposed to do in their native Congo jungles. This tin proclaims to the guests and to the public at large that it is time to come in and be fed. But this refinement of civilization is not yet in Coney.